Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's Journey Through History, we're going to look at an era during the 1800s and early 1900s surrounding an industry called the millinery industry, otherwise known as the hat making industry. There were several businesses all across Southwest Michigan, and you would be hard pressed traveling in those days through the various towns from Kalamazoo, Grand Rapids, Battle Creek, Marshall, Jackson, and so forth without coming across a millinery shop. So we're going to talk a little bit about what the millinery business was, and we're also going to explore the life of one woman who was engaged in this industry in Battle Creek, Michigan. So come along and join me. Certain industries are driven by fashion of the time and the culture of the era that they exist. Millinery is the design, manufacture, and sale of hats or other headwear. People involved in the profession are typically referred to as milliners or hatters. So it is the industry of hat making. The term milliner, or variations on it like Milaner, originally meant someone from Milan in northern Italy in the early 16th century. It referred to Milanese merchants who sold fancy bonnets, gloves, jewelry, and cutlery. In the 16th to 18th century, the meaning of milliner gradually changed to the meaning for foreign merchant. And then it changed to a dealer in small articles related to dress. Although the term originally applied to men, from 1713, milliner gradually came to mean a woman who makes and sells bonnets and other headgear for women. So that covers some of the broad and early origins of the term milliner. Historically, milliners produced or imported an inventory of garments for both men, women, and children and sold these garments in a millinery shop. The millinery industry benefited from industrialization during the 19th century. In 1889 in London and Paris, there were over 8,000 women who were employed in millinery. And then in 1900 in New York, there were some 83,000 people, mostly women, who were employed in millinery. Though the improvements in technology provided benefits to milliners and the whole industry, essential skills, craftsmanship, and creativity were still required. So they were still required, in essence, to be an artist or a craftsman in their field. It took skill to create beautiful hats and hats that appealed to people that they wanted to wear. Since the mass manufacturing of hats began, the term milliner is usually used to describe a person who applies traditional hand craftsmanship to the design to make, sell, or trim hats primarily for mostly female clientele. Now, typically, milliners learned their trade through an apprenticeship-type program, and millinery apprentices learned hat making and styling how to run a business, and skills that they needed to communicate with customers. They also learned the various tools and molds and chemicals and other systems to work with the various types of material to create and manufacture hats. Now, some of the tools that they used 
were obviously, as most professions, are unique to the trade. One of them was a wooden hat block, which was an intricately carved wood-formed shape that was made by skillful woodworkers. And the hat blocks are basically the tools of the trade for milliners. And this helped create the unique hat crown shape when they put the fabric around it. And some of the hat blocks are ensembles with a crown and they're brimmed and while others are only with a crown or brim or design for different aspects of a hat. So they can be all one piece or they could be in different pieces where they connect the different pieces of the hat together, if that makes sense. And milliners that are in the profession always have an extensive collection of different hat blocks because there are specific hat sizes and there's custom shapes for every hat and each one requires a separate block in order to create that type of hat. And in the blocking process of a hat, milliners used push pins and a hammer to hold the adjustable string along the crown or collar and the brim edge of a hat. So that was just the hat block. There were other tools like a floral making iron, which is a unique iron used by milliners to create different floral petals or leaves as the ornament for hat decoration. And in the early days when they needed to heat up those irons that they used to press in those floral shapes or patterns, they used to use a candle and that was the tradition of how they heated the iron as they took a candle and they held it underneath it. Nowadays, of course, these irons that they use are electric. Now, the fabric that they use to make hats, they often use a fabric referred to as buckram, which is a stiff cotton, usually linen or horsehair, which is a cloth with a loose weave. And the millinery buckram is impregnated with a starch, which allows it to be softened in water and then pulled over a hat block and left to dry into a hard shape. So if you can imagine for a minute the shape of a derby hat has that nice round top part as compared to a top hat which has that flat part and then the straight part coming down, the fabric would be stretched over these blocks in that shape at the precise size of the hat and then it would be allowed to dry into that hard shape. And the millinery buckram, this material that they use, comes in many weights, including lightweight, or what they refer to as baby buckram, which is used for children's and dolls' hats. And there's different plies that are used in this material. There's single-ply buckram and double-ply buckram, which have different uses in the craft of millinery to create a different effect with a hat. So you have these loosely woven fabrics that are used sometimes say for a lady's hat which might be more of a lighter material for a summer hat whereas you also have this more of a compressed stiff cotton felt that you might see for a more formal hat for an example. Now the hat making industry, the milliners, also had a lot of chemicals that they worked with and you may be familiar with the term or the character the Mad Hatter from Lewis Correll's Alice in Wonderland series. Well, the phrase mad as a hatter actually comes from the Mad Hatter disease, which was better known as mercury poisoning. In the 19th century, fur treated with mercury was used to make felt hats. And hatters were often working in a very small, confined space, and they breathed toxic mercury fumes, resulting in a mad or irrational behavior from the exposure to mercury. 
So that's a little side note history about the origins of the term Mad Hatter or being mad as a hatter. Now, I came across this really fun article that was published in March of 1908 in the Sunday Journal Record. And if you listen to this podcast for a while, you'll find that I quite often love to refer to articles that were published in the Sunday Journal Record because they seem to have a collection of a lot of fascinating historical things that were going on at the time. And this one is not so much historical as a commentary and a humorous account of the millinery industry, which at this point in history was predominantly run by women by 1908, uh, at least a lot of the manufacturers of hats in the area. Now, Battle Creek, unlike a lot of the other towns in the area, they all had millineries. Every every town in the southwest Michigan probably had a millinery shop or two. But Battle Creek had a high concentration of them. There were, according to this record, about a dozen of them that existed in Battle Creek at the time, and such that they were holding a special week-long uh, millinery festival where they had uh, all of their wares on display. And so in preparation for this new display or this new event that was happening, they wrote this article. And they also were poking fun at the ladies with their hat styles. So this is all a bit tongue-in-cheek, but there's some great illustrations on here. And if I can, I'm going to put it on the graphic for the uh, podcast episode so you can see a few of them in this illustration. But uh, it reads, Have you seen the new skyscrapers that the women are now wearing when they don their millinery and go out for an airing? These hats are surely wonders. Some are flat and cover acres. If they're tall, they're just as ample had a credit to their hat makers. Some are made with stovepipe, corrugated, towering stories toward the heavens, and fitted up with an apparatus that could catch a wireless from Bob Evans. If Daisy would adjust the feather that adorns the apex of her hat, she'd need a ladder to reach up far above her. Pretty Susan's is a flower pot with a plant above it blooming. In Jenny's tile adornment, some sparrows are a-rooming. Gentle Mary has a stunner as big as an umbrella with enough stuff and trimmings on it to scandalize a fellow. Ingenious Lizzie borrowed from a friend an old work basket who turned it deftly over and with velvet ribbons masked it. Put a pom-pom on the bottom and a buckle just below it and had then the concoction and although no one would know it, it stood her in a dollar to a friend who asked about it and made an awful holler. And say, can you doubt it that it cost a trifle over 50? Lizzie always was the nifty. Each hat is a curation, and there's a world of things to show it. They're all up there above it, and a pompadour's below it. And yet there's talk of hard times and the awful lack of money, but the bonnets do not show it, and the women say it's funny. And that was the little poem that they opened this little article with to introduce the spring openings show of the millinery shops that will display their wonderful collection of millinery throughout the week. And the millinery shops of the city of Battle Creek during that week of March 22nd, 1908, were opening their doors wide during the week for women around the community. And they had flowers of all varieties with blooms and protrusions and ribbons in all sorts of fashions and colors. 
and they were temptingly displayed. There were colors of geraniums, families of roses, Copenhagen blue, and shades of brown and peacock and mahoganies. And they were designed to appeal to all sensibilities. The hats that they had on display would be high-crowned hats tripped with roses, turbans, and twists, and loops, and lace, and net. There was a style of Gainsborough hat which had a beautiful ostrich plume sticking out of it and odd shapes with cherries three times their normal size. There was a wealth of color, delicacy, and shading, graceful lines and patterns, boldness of conception and protrusion, material, richness of texture, individually designed, and all things were evident in the spring display. And then they provided a list of all of the millinery shops that were taking part in the spring opening show. And this was Lane and Perkins, Wilson and Ritchie, the Moore Brothers, Schroeder Brothers, Miss Alma Butler, Mrs. Josephine Ashford, Mrs. M. Balmer, Mrs. Eve Talbot, Mrs. R. Highland, Mrs. Leon Percy, Mrs. T.J. Mack, and Mrs. Ross. So in essence, they were poking fun at this millinery show and adding a lot of uh, colorful prose to describe it. But it was calling attention to an industry that was very popular during the early 1900s. And of course, this had been around since the 1800s. And the millinery industry had been a growing industry in Battle Creek. And people were fashionably wearing hats with all of their attires. And women, particularly, wore hats everywhere they went. And men did as well. So since my involvement with the Battle Creek Regional History Museum, putting on presentations and things like that, uh, especially starting with Tales of Christmas Pass, which I took part in last year and I'll be doing again this season, of course I had to eventually buy a top hat. And now I have several different styles of hats because, hey, hats are kind of addictive once you start wearing them. And they're kind of fun, especially when you're doing historical performances and things like that. But I'd love to see hats as a fashion in general come back into play. I think derbies and uh, top hats and fedoras and all of these hats. And some men do make an effort to wear these in public all the time. And I think it would be really cool if hatting became a very big thing in future fashion. Because what's cooler than a top hat or a derby? I mean, come on. Or seeing one of these ladies with one of these amazingly big, beautiful hats that they would wear to the Kentucky Derby or something like that. It is just a a lost industry that I think became less important over time as fashion's interests changed. But, you know, we should all work to bring that back. But I want to tell you a story now about a woman by the name of Mary Morgan. And I came across her story when I was doing a video out at Morgan Cemetery. And I was just researching a lot of the headstones. And I decided to do a lot of stories related to the Morgan family, obviously, because the cemetery was named after them. And part of that video, I tell the stories of a lot of the individual family members that I was able to find. And I've also talked about some of her story in another episode when I was referring to genealogy. But Mary Morgan had quite an interesting history. She was the youngest child in this family, and she perhaps had the most amazing story of the entire family. She was born in Mina, New York in 1832. And throughout her life, she always talked about growing up in her childhood home, which was a log cabin with a wide fireplace. 
and she remembers the blazing fire provided light for her mother to read to them in the evenings. And she described how her mother learned to twist a piece of cloth and place it in a saucer of grease and later mold them into tallow candles, which was how you made candles back then. It was one way of making candles back then. And then she also recalled the later development of the kerosene lamp and how her parents introduced that into the home, and then gas and electricity. So Mary herself had lived through the whole cycle of technology related to illumination in her lifetime. She grew up with candles as being the light source and the fireplace, and moving on to kerosene lamps and gas and electricity and so forth. So that was a story she liked to tell a lot. Now, Mary, as an adult, was only five feet in height. And so when she was a child, she was very small, so much that when her mother took her to her first day of school, the teacher asked if she'd brought a cradle also. And she always described that she never grew up with dolls, but she had all kinds of live pets, and gooselings were her favorite. And throughout her life, she adored birds in general and loved to feed them outside of her home. And when she was 21 years old, she learned the millinery trade in Erie, Pennsylvania. So my guess is that she probably worked at a factory there because that was a time that the millinery industry was really starting to take hold in the United States. There are several areas of the country that had these big millinery manufacturing. And so she probably learned the trade in some sort of a factory or perhaps just took an apprenticeship somewhere and learned the skills and tools that I talked about earlier in this episode. And really to learn the trade in those days was really an undertaking. She knew the whole process of making hats, and she could do everything from bleaching of the material to blocking, which was the molds on those wooden hat molds, and pressing them and steaming them. And she eventually was able to start her own millinery business. And she conducted that millinery business over in Pennsylvania for 20 years before she eventually moved to Battle Creek, Michigan. And she had a sister named Rebecca who worked with her for 10 years in Erie, Pennsylvania, before she actually moved the millinery business to Battle Creek. And when she had her business here in Battle Creek, she employed 18 women in her business. So you can get an idea how popular hats were during that time period. Now, during her life, Mary never got married. And she was known affectionately among her family and the people who knew her in Battle Creek as Aunt Mary. Her niece, Florence, also worked with her and her sister in the millinery when they were here in Battle Creek. And Mary lived with Rebecca, her sister, and her niece, Florence, for several years while she ran the business. And they all lived in the same house on Garfield Street. Susan was another sister that worked with her in the business. And they sold the millinery business in 1906. And after Susan and her other sister, Rebecca, had died in 1911, Florence, her niece, moved in with Mary, and they made a pact to always live together and care for each other. So Mary was an avid reader her whole adult life, and she read the daily paper in its entirety every day when it was delivered to her home. And she loved working in the garden and would always set the table for special holidays around the family. And she enjoyed visiting with relatives, and as I mentioned before, she was known as Aunt Mary, and friends in the area 
would come over and visit with her. So she was a very popular social woman in her time. And she lived to an astounding age of 103, and she maintained good health her entire life. In fact, her family said that when she passed away, in the days that preceded her death, they had hardly noticed any decline in her physical condition. In her long obituary, she was described as always being naturally cheerful and hopeful, and Aunt Mary radiated happiness and was beloved by all those who knew her. And for many years, she'd been the inspiration of the Morgan family reunions. And in the summer, it was Aunt Mary's picnic, and the winter, it was her birthday anniversary. So she, although not having any children of her own, had a large extended family that adored her, as well as a large circle of friends within the community. And as you can imagine, her having been involved with the millinery business in Battle Creek for many, many years, she probably had a large customer base of friends from that business as well. And it was said that in her later years before she died, she was unable to ride around in automobiles, but was said to have enjoyed sitting on her porch and watching the world go by. And that was her daily enjoyment and activity and she was the oldest living resident of Battle Creek at the time of her death in 1935. And if you're curious, she is actually buried at Oak Hill Cemetery, not Morgan Cemetery. Now during that time period, milliners were often a separate business or activity from say a haberdasher. A haberdasher was a English term for a business or person who sold small articles for sewing and dressmaking and knitting. They also sold such items as buttons and ribbons and zippers, and they also made drapery and other types of cloth material. And the term itself comes from the manufacturer or makers of cloth is what it essentially originates from in its origin. And the industry was often associated with dressmaking and manufacturers of clothing. And the term haberdashery was the name for the shop itself. And so you would sometimes see a millinery shop and nearby a haberdashery shop. And the term haberdashery and haberdasher kind of has faded from use and common use. But that was during that time period, even until the 1930s, you would see haberdasher shops and haberdasheries uh, in England and Britain. And you will see references to it if you read the book by Chaucer, The Canterbury Tales, for example. And it's a little bit debatable where the term actually came from, but it's typically associated with fabric or assorted small wear in its origin of the term. So that's essentially what it means. It's a peddler or seller of cloth or linens or silks and goods related to that business. Whereas the millinery were the hat makers and they were a specialty unto themselves in manufacturing headwear. They sometimes also carried gloves and other types of accessories, but for the most part, they were focused on hat manufacturing and the manufacturing of both men and women's hats. And in a lot of my tours through different museums around southwest Michigan, as well as just doing a lot of research in general for my book and sort of thing like that. There are a lot of references to millinery shops in Kalamazoo and Battle Creek, Marshall, even in Athens. They had a millinery down there uh, right on Main Street for back in the 1800s. And so it is a industry that pops up and you will see if you're digging into those old newspapers, you'll see millinery shops and advertisements or references to it in town. And uh, it was part of the lifestyle of that era. And as I said before, it would be wonderful if that came back 
as a big mainstream. So hats off to the millinery industry. And that's going to conclude today's journey through history. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It was just a little bit of a specialized episode in a particular industry that I happen to have a lot of affinity for when I research old stories of this time period. If you would like to help out this podcast, please take some time to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on, particularly Spotify or Apple. It helps me to pick up new listeners, and probably 80% of my listeners come from those two apps. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners, and I really enjoy hearing from you and your suggestions and questions that you might have about local history topics. And if you would like to support me even further, go on Facebook and look for the page Michael Delaware Author and hit the follow button on that page and follow along with my posts because my book will be coming out in March of next year. I just went through the final round of edits this past week, and it took me most of the week to get through that, having to reread the book and review the edits that my publisher suggested and determining whether I agreed with them. And a very tedious process to go over the same material for the hundredth time that you've done. It's just uh, really, I'm really hoping that people will enjoy reading the book, especially if you like true crime tales from yesteryear. Uh, I think you'll really find it fits in your wheelhouse. Uh, Good positive feedback so far from those that have been editing the book. So I am optimistic that people will enjoy hearing these stories and reading about these stories. So until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening.